Let's pray. God, we pray that you would open up our hearts to receive your word, that you would be glorified, that you would just draw us closer to you. So have your way with us, please, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so um, Wednesday nights, we've said this before, but we'll say it again, at least till the end of the year, probably. Uh, we're going through the Bible in a year as a church, and if you're not sure where we're at, that's okay. There's pamphlets on the back that have the whole reading plan. You can get one. You can pick up on tomorrow morning or whatever, which is the 23rd of September, and just start and just watch, watch the Lord transform your life through His Word. Um, but on Wednesday nights, we're doing a, just kind of a piece, and I, somebody asked me this week, it's like, so what's your goal from Wednesday nights? Like, are you trying to give people like a Bible overview in a year, or what are you trying to really accomplish on Wednesday nights? Which is a, which is a great question. Um, and um, there ought to be a great answer, but there isn't necessarily quite as great of an answer. Um, but in a nutshell, what we're doing on Wednesday nights is we're trying to look at one just pocket of what we've been reading over the week and trying to say, okay, how, is, you know, how can we kind of, sort of how can we learn how to look for what the Lord is saying, right? How can we, as we're just trying to, you know, glean and say, okay, you know, I'm reading these passages. Um, what are some ways in which the Lord can speak to us? And so we're not doing like a big, it's not necessarily an overview, although that does come with part of, moving through this fast, but we're just looking at, like, you know, kind of what is the Lord saying? And uh, this week was interesting because some weeks it's like, you know, like I know on Thursday morning, right? I've looked ahead and like, and I know, like, this is what the Lord is saying to me. This is what I'm going to share. I've got like, there's like three bullet points right there. They're already lined up. I'm ready to go, right? Some weeks it's a little more like, uh, Lord, this would be a really good time for you to make yourself very obvious. Uh, and this week, honestly, is a little more like that. Um, so this week's reading took us from Daniel chapter 9 all the way through the book of Amos. And so we're wrapping up the Old Testament. Um, next week, we're going to start at the book of Obadiah and read, well, tomorrow morning, we'll start at the book of Obadiah and read all the way through uh, to the book of Malachi. So we'll finish up the Old Testament next week. I'm not going to be here next week, Wednesday night, but Larry's going to be teaching. And there's some, like, there's some killer stuff in those books of the Bible, right? I mean, there's some absolutely amazing stuff, and I have no idea what Larry's going to teach. Um, but there's just some fantastic passages of Scripture where the Lord speaks with such clarity and such love and such just distinct, like, here's what I want you to do. And it's just amazing. Um, Hosea, Joel, and Amos aren't quite that easy to pull stuff out of. Um, and so I was, just, I was praying about it this week and like, okay, Lord, what do you want to— what do you want to say? Because it's still the word of the Lord, right? But there are passages that are easier to glean things out of than others. And so, um, so tonight, um, basically, we're not going to cover anything that you guys don't know already. We're not going to uncover some, you know, profound hidden truth and uh, understand, you know, Hosea. And if you understand the original verb in Hebrew or whatever, it's probably not going to be nearly that profound. But um, it won't be nearly that profound. But... Um, but as I was praying about it, I kind of saying, what do you want us, what do you kind of want us to look at? Um, I think the Lord just kind of drew my focus back to some of the basics. And I think that's a good thing sometimes. And so we're not going to really be hitting like, you know, huge, massive th thoughts necessarily. But sometimes the most basic things in the gospel are those huge, massive thoughts, right? You, any any five-year-old can understand the gospel. And any PhD can misunderstand the gospel, 
right? Because it's at the same time, it's the most simple truth in the world, and it's the most complex truth in the world. And uh, so anyways, so tonight, we're going to just look at that a little bit. And so we're going to look in the book of Hosea. We're going to do chapters 1, 2, and 3. And as we're looking at the minor prophets, this is good to keep in mind, especially through next week, we're going to see um, this interesting overlap where because God stands outside of time, he can speak something in a sentence, and it might be directly, you know, to be fulfilled right there in that moment. It might have uh, fulfillment that'll come a little bit down the road, and it might have a fulfillment that comes way down the road. Okay, and we, we talked about this on Sundays, going through, you know, Isaiah and now going through Jeremiah. There's these passages where it's like, okay, wait, there's a prophecy that was for Isaiah, and Isaiah got to see its fulfillment, but he didn't really quite see the entire fulfillment. And we saw a part of that fulfillment when Jesus Christ came to earth a second time, but we still haven't seen the full fulfillment because there's more coming at the end of time, right? And so it's almost like uh, if you're looking at a silhouetted picture, you can think you understand what happens in the picture until all of a sudden it's colored in or it's shaded or the lighting is better, and you realize like, oh, no, there's some depth here, right? Everything can look flat until you see the depth. And so that's sort of what we're looking at as these prophecies is, there's going to be passages where it's like, oh, okay, here's what the Lord's saying. But at the same time, there's going to be passages where it's like, you know, it kind of sounds like he's talking about Jesus' coming. And then there's going to be passages where it's like, I really, I've never, like he's talking about a historical event that I don't think has ever happened, right? And so we're going to have all those. But as we look at Hosea, we're going to sort of see this overlay. So uh, if you're there at chapter 1, we're going to start reading. And it says, The word of the Lord which came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So, just real fast, we're talking about 2,600 years ago, give or take. Um, the nation of Israel had divided at this point into the nation of Israel and Judah. Israel was the northern half. Judah was the southern half. Uh, Hosea is a unique prophet in that he's actually speaking to both. Most prophets wind up speaking to one or the other. Um, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, verse 2, the Lord said to Hosea, Go and take to yourself a wife of har- harlotry, and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel, for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So the Lord does this kind of weird thing um, where he asks Hosea, to live out a picture that's going to demonstrate a truth. And it's really weird uh, to read this kind of stuff in the Old Testament sometimes, but it's a reality that the Lord did a lot in the Old Testament. He did it with Isaiah. He did it with Jeremiah. He did it with Ezekiel. Um, and the Lord would do this. where He'd say, okay, here's what I want you to do. Right? So he tells Hosea, I want you to go marry a prostitute. And you're going to have kids together. And, um, and I'm going to demonstrate to Israel how I feel towards them, and what their relationship with me is doing, okay? Because I'm the husband, and Israel's the prostitute right now. And, and you're going to have kids, and these kids are going to be this, like, you know, it's going to be complex, it's going to be messy, it's going to be sticky, right? And the Lord is giving Hosea this call, not necessarily because he's giving Hosea a fun ride, right? Because serving the Lord isn't really always about having fun, um, but because he wants to use Hosea. He wants to glorify himself through Hosea. So he goes on in verse 6. 
And it says, Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to, her, said to him, Name her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel, that I would ever forgive them. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah, and deliver them by the Lord their God, and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. When she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son, and the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet <clears throat> the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together, and they will appoint for themselves one leader, and they will go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. So Hosea and his wife start having kids, and the Lord tells him what to name the kids. And each one of these names has significance. So uh, his first daughter is named Loruhamah, which means she hasn't obtained compassion. And the next son after that is named uh, Lo-Ami, which means you're not my people. Okay, so the Lord is giving some very powerful symbolism through these kids of Hosea's. And he's saying, this is the symbol for the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. That they are living in this kind of rebellion to me. And the consequence of this is that they're separating themselves from me. They're really not my people anymore. Right? They're, they've, they don't receive my compassion anymore. And it's, it's, we're going to watch... And this is sometimes the hard reality to understand as Christians. God will let them walk away from him. But he, he will let them sin. He will let them experience the consequences of their sin. Right? He will judge them. He will discipline them. But he will also love them. And sometimes that's a little hard to wrap our heads around because we have this idea of you know, the American ideal of love and, and what that looks like. But God is right here saying, you know what? Right now, the way you stand, you're not my people. And until something changes, and it's not my choice, it's your choice, right? But notice something interesting. In verse 6, he says, I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel, that I would ever forgive them. And then in verse 10, he says, Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. So you could look at that and say, wow, that seems contradictory, right? But you got to remember, we're talking about a God who sees outside of space and time. And so as we're looking at the first passage, the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, was eventually taken captive by the nation of Assyria. And they were sort of culturally acclimated in. They lost their Jewish identity. And to this day, nobody's 100% positive. Like, if you're Jewish, most likely you're from the tribe of Judah. You might be from somewhere else, but it's kind of hard to track, right? We're talking about 2,000 years later. But in the book of Revelation, we know that God has preserved for himself uh, at least 12,000 people from each one of the 12 tribes of, of the nation of Israel. Okay? So we don't know who they are, but God does. Right? And so these people have stepped outside of God's compassion. They've stepped outside of the identity of what he's offered them as his children. Um, and so there's going to be consequences, but there's also long term, there's a big picture overall of what God's doing. And the big picture here is, you know what? You guys are going to be dealt with. I will not let you walk in this kind of sin without consequences. The bigger picture is, I'm going to restore you guys, right? I'm going to do things that you can't imagine. And so um, there's always, you know, whenever we see God's judgment, we always see God's restoration. It's always side by side. And even, uh, you know, right up, even through the Great Tribulation, we still see that, right? We see the final judgment, and then there's the, after that, there's the final time of rewards for all who have accepted Christ. And so it's always... It's always there side by side. And so we'll be, you know, as we're reading 
the minor prophets this week, there's a lot of God's judgment. But don't make the mistake of saying like, oh, this is the Old Testament God, or oh, this is back when God was so judgmental. This is God's judgment, but if you oftentimes read the next verse or the next couple verses, you're going to see God's love and God's restoration right there at the same time. So, verse, so chapter 2, uh, it says, Say to your brothers, Ami, and to your sister, Ruhama, and contend with your mother. And we'll kind of jump through chapter 2 a little bit. Um, but basically, tell your wife to put away her prostitution. Um, or I will make her desolate. I'll make her like a desert land. Also, verse 4, I will have no compassion on her children. Verse 5, for their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge her up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them. And she will seek them, but will not find them. And then she will say, I will go back to my first husband, for it was better for me than now. For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain at harvest time and my new wine in its season. I will also take away my wool and my flax that were given to cover her nakedness. And then I will uncover her in the sight of her, in the sight of her lovers, and no one will rescue her out of my hand. I will put an end to all her gaiety, her feast, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her festal assemblies. I will destroy her vines and fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me, and I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field will devour them. I will punish her for the days of the Baals when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn, herself with her, adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry and follow her lover so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. That's a big mouthful. That's the Lord saying, I'm going to deal with this, and I'm going to make sure that everybody understands that I've dealt with this, right? And you don't ever want to get to a position in your life where the Lord has to talk like this, right? Because he will. The Lord will talk like this, right? Um, this is not the first warning, though, right? This is like any a good parent uh, understands we have clear rules. You know, it's not just going off the handle at all times for no reason. It's no, there's rules. You broke them. You understood the consequences that were coming. Here come the consequences, right? It's not done in rage. It's done in discipline and an attitude of love. But the Lord has allowed them to sin. The Lord did not force them to obey him. But he's not going to allow them to escape the consequences. Because each one of us, we're free to make whatever choice we want in life. We really are. You can do whatever you want. But you don't get to determine the consequences. You're free to make whatever choice you want to make. If you want to rob a bank, okay. If you want to kill somebody, okay. If you want to really, I mean, name your... Choose, choose your thing. If you want to do it, okay. You can do that. But there are consequences. And you don't get the right to escape the consequences. Okay? So the Lord here is saying, you know what? My bride, Israel, has deluded herself. She's convinced herself that all the good things she ever had were back when she was serving the Baals and her idols. When she was selling herself out to all the different nations and, and walking in their idolatry. And, and she thought that all the gifts that she had at that time were from them. And I'm going to box her in to where she cannot receive from them. And all of a sudden she's going to realize, no, none of that came from them. And she's going to realize it all came from me. Right? I'm going to deal with this right here, right now, to make sure that she understands that these good gifts did not come from these false lovers. They came from me. Right? And remember, and, and this is a pretty, like, 
you know, in some ways, this is kind of heavy stuff, right? But on the flip side, this is just basic reality. God will let us sin up to a point, and he will deal with our sin, right? God will let us, and, you know, it says, uh, well, anyways, um, you know, in scriptures it talks about, like, sin is pleasurable for a season, right? You get some fun out of sin for a while, but it always catches up with you. And so, right here, this is what the Lord's doing. But he goes on, and we said, right, don't ever just look at the judgment side, because you're going to lose some context. So, that's first half of chapter 2, there's a lot of judgment there, right? But, verse 14, therefore, after, I've, after the Lord has described, you know, I'm going to, because of all her idolatry and all her lewdness and all her fornication, all her sin, therefore, and, it, and it's really grammatically a poorly placed word if you want to think about it, because really it should be in spite of. The Lord's going to say, therefore, I'm going to restore her. But if, if you're looking at this from a human perspective, the answer is it's not she's been unfaithful, therefore I'm going to win her back. It's she's been unfaithful, so in spite of that. But God doesn't operate the way we do, right? God operates on a therefore kind of a love. And so he says, therefore, behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness, and speak kindly to her. Then I will give her her vineyards from there, and the valley of Achor as a door of hope, and she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi and will no longer call me Baali. And these are Hebrew words. Ishi means my husband, and Baali means my master. So he says, it'll come about in that day that you'll call me my husband, and you won't call me my master. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth so that they will not be mentioned by their names anymore. And that day I'll make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make them lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. It will come about in that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens, and they will respond to the earth, and the earth will respond to the grain, to the new wine, and to the oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who has not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. So the Lord's promising restoration. And what's interesting is, you know, this is one of these passages where we've talked about, again, we're looking at kind of, there's a short-term, medium-term, long-term fulfillment here. Okay? He says, you're not going to call me my master. You're going to call me my husband. I'm going to restore you. And this isn't just going to be like, you know, I did my thing and now you're free. Right? We're talking about a different level of, of knowledge here. Right? I'm going to take you from a religion where I'm God the master to a relationship where I'm God the husband. Right? He's promising them something. This is deeper than just, I'm going to fix your economic woes. And this is deeper than just, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to bring you, you know, back from captivity. Right? He's giving a promise here. What's the promise? This is the promise of Jesus Christ. Right? You're going to become the bride of Christ. And then he says, I'm going to abolish the bow and the sword and the war from the land, and I'll make them lie down in safety. That hasn't happened yet. Right? We haven't experienced that in its fullness he says, yes, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, in loving kindness, and in compassion. Has that been fulfilled yet? Well, yes and no, right? We have the promise of Jesus Christ. We have the relationship with Jesus Christ right now. 
We have the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts. But we haven't quite hit the full extent of this, right? But we're watching God give us his heart for restoration and remind us of who he is, okay? And he says, remember at the beginning, as he's given Hosea these children and telling them to name them, right? And say, hey, this child talks about how you don't have compassion or how these people aren't going to receive compassion. This child's name is going to talk about how you're not my people. And then in chapter 2, he says, I'm going to say to those who aren't my people, you're my people. And they're going to say, you're my God. He says, everything that's happened, all these consequences, it's all going to be undone. It's going to be overcome. It's going to be moved beyond in a way that you can't even comprehend right now. Because you're still in this stage of people who are saying, you know, you're not my people. But I'm going to do something. And then we get to chapter 3. Chapter 3 is honestly probably the it's one of the weirdest chapters in the Bible, um, which is fun, you know. Uh, then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. Just got to stop. Raisin cakes are connected to a pagan practice, so it's not like raisin cakes in and of themselves are the problem. Um, so I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Then I said to her, you shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man, so I will also be toward you. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days." So we talked at the beginning about the fact that Hosea is given this call by God to live out a picture that might not have been exactly a fun picture to live out, right? Now, don't misunderstand this and say the Lord was making people sin or do anything like that, okay? There's still free will, and it's still complicated, and it's still a mystery. We don't fully understand it. But Hosea's wife left him, okay? Hosea has these kids with his wife, and then she leaves. She goes back into prostitution. She goes back into human trafficking. And, and well, I'll try, I'm trying to keep it, you know, at a discreet enough level. But Isaiah's wife goes back into a really dark place, right? And the end result is that she winds up on the auction block at a slave market. And the Lord says, hey, go buy your wife. And Isaiah goes and buys his wife, right? And the Lord says, okay, you see this picture, right? This is, this is nuts, Right? Like, do you understand, Hosea? Do you understand, Israel and Judah, that what just happened here is nuts? Right? That's what I'm doing. Okay? I was your husband. I gave you everything you needed. I gave you the law. I gave you the prophets. I gave you your promised land. I brought you out of Egypt. I kept you in the wilderness. Right? Most of the stories of my goodness are the stories of me working in spite of all your complaining and your disobedience. Right? Which is, I was a faithful husband. And what did you do? You left. And what happened? You wound up in the slave market, and what am I going to do? I'm going to buy you back, right? We talked about on Sunday, actually, in Jeremiah. It says if a woman divorces her husband and then goes and is with another man, does she get to go back? What's the answer? Like, the Lord says, that's sick, right? And that's the Lord's statement, really, in an abridged version of that, right? And so what the Lord is telling us, he says, understand She's not coming back to me. I'm going to her, right? This is, this is the difference, right? Once you're in this position that Gomer, Hosea's wife, is in, you don't get the right 
to ask to come back, right? I mean, and deep down, we kind of, you know, we kind of still understand this, even in a secular culture. Like, we can almost see this in a movie, right? Like, if a woman leaves her man and then messes stuff up and comes back and she's, like, begging him to take her back, he can just kind of shrug it off and walk away, right? And it's that scene, it can be a scene in a movie where, like, okay, that's hard, but it's totally legit, right? The, the bride doesn't get the right to ask for forgiveness, right? She has no grounds, no justification to ask for forgiveness. But the groom has the right to say, I'm going to buy her back. And so, you know, we talked about there's kind of the, there's the immediate, there's the short-term, there's the long-term fulfillment of this prophecy. Well, the short-term fulfillment is the Lord's going to do this with the nation of Judah. Judah's going to get carried away into captivity for 70 years, and then the Lord's going to bring them back into their land, right? The fulfillment, though, is each one of us is Gomer. Each one of us has stepped outside. Each one of us has received the goodness of God just by virtue of the fact that we were created in his image, right? And then we squandered it. We wasted it. We wound up for sale, and he bought us back. And, and this is, you know, that's, the, that's like the simplest thing to understand, okay? What happened? We sinned, and God saved us. It's there. It's a straightforward fact. But what happened, right? Well, you're never going to fully understand what happened. It's too rich, right? In some ways, it's, it's almost, it's really, it's kind of scandalous, right? That God would love somebody that much. It, it defies everything we know about relationships and logic. It defies everything, right? But God says, Jose, you go buy your wife back because I'm going to buy my wife back. And I want a picture so that people know this. So, all right, so then, so that's the gospel, right? We, I mean, you know, we look at the Old Testament, and we say, okay, you know, I understand it's the Bible, but what does it have to do with, like, you know, Jesus Christ, and how does this apply, right? Well, Jesus Christ is right here. We're looking at a picture of Jesus Christ. Interestingly enough, okay, Hosea really, um, Hebrew is a little weird because English speakers have different consonants, okay? Hebrew doesn't have a J. There's no just sound in Hebrew. So where we stick in a J, a lot of times they put in an H sound, all right? So it's important to just understand a couple things. So the name Joshua and the name Hosea are basically the same thing uh, as, it, as it would have shaken out in Hebrew. Jesus' Hebrew name was really, more or less, Joshua, Hashua. All right? We call him Jesus. That's the Greek form of his name. That's what he would have been called very often through his life. So that's not incorrect. Okay? But really, in a lot of ways, Hosea bought back his bride. And it's not a stretch to look at the language and say, you could say, Hosea Christ brought back his bride. Jesus Christ bought back his bride. So the Lord gives us this even to the name. All right? So we can look and say, you know, I don't get the Old Testament. That's okay. Keep reading. Keep looking and saying, where is the gospel? What is God trying to say to me about Jesus Christ, about the single most pivotal moment in all of human history? Okay, so that's one part. Don't lose sight of the power of the Old Testament. But also, as we're looking at this, okay, if, if you're going to look at the gospel, and you're going to understand, you're going to say, okay, I'm that woman, right? I'm standing there in the crowd, and he just bought me, okay? Hosea, in the Old Testament, buys his wife back, for 15 shekels of silver 
and a homer and a half of barley. Okay, some silver and some barley. That's great. Jesus Christ bought us with his blood, right? So, when you get ransomed, when you get bought back, when you get redeemed, you can't just take that and then leave it. You have to do something about it, right? If you really understand what happens at that moment, if you understand what redemption is, if you understand what it means to be the slave at the market who's now suddenly bought by a guy who says, I'm not your master, I'm your husband, right? If you understand that in its context, okay, then what do you do, right? Because you have to do something with that. You can't just leave that. So as we're wrapping up, just real fast tonight, I want us to look at the New Testament and just look at some spots where we get a little bit of a, of a picture of, okay, hey, here's what the gospel is. So, or therefore, right? So if you would, um, flip over to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to jump through a couple of Paul's epistles here. Um, Ephesians, you know, we just went through Ephesians not too terribly long ago. And the whole first half is all about what God has done. So Ephesians 2, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Ephesians 4, I'm sorry, Ephesians 2, 1. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. And then verse 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. We weren't just, we hadn't just left him. We were dead, right? He didn't just buy us back. He made us alive. So what happens? Ephesians 4, verse 1. Therefore, Paul spends three whole chapters, right? We're moving fast, so we're condensing it. Paul spends three chapters of the Bible talking about what this means, that Christ has made us alive. And he says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you, with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul says, Hey, because God did all of that, for you, just kind of live in a way like, you know, how a wife would, like a nice wife would treat a nice husband, right? Like, it's not like super complex here, right? Paul said, okay, and I say that as a single guy, right? What do I know about a nice wife and a nice husband? But either way, right? Paul says, okay, just respond to it. It's not like you got to make something happen. Just respond to it. Go to Philippians, same basic concept. Um, chapter 1, Paul's talking about the glory of Christ. And in chapter 2, he says, Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation in love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, if God loves you guys, okay, therefore, if God loves you at all, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Okay, you've been bought back. If you come from a slave market, you probably shouldn't, like, compare notes on who was, like, closest to being, like, a high-ranking slave. Because you were all still slaves, right? Paul says, hey, guys, if Christ loves you, then just respond to it. Be of the same mind, right? Be focused on Christ. Don't worry about other people's problems, right? Just respond to the goodness of Christ. Colossians. Okay, Colossians. Paul talks about how, oh my gosh, Colossians 1. Paul talks about how Jesus Christ 
oh, by the way, he didn't just like save us. He's also holding everything together. He's, he's everything, right? Paul starts to make a point in Colossians and then gets distracted for like nine verses just describing who Jesus is, okay? If Jesus is all those things, which he is, uh, then Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Paul says, guys, if Christ is real, we talked about last week, you know, Daniel's friends were willing to live like God was real. Okay? Now, their, their application of that was, we're willing to stand in a fiery furnace. It doesn't matter what God does. But we believe he's real, and so we're going to live like he's real. Okay? That was their application. Paul says, hey, your application is set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. Don't be focused on the problems of the world. Don't be focused on, making, on trying to get the world to make you happy. Let, the, let, the, let Christ be your fulfillment, right? And then um, in verse 12, well, I'll back up. In verse 5, chapter 3, verse 5, he says, Therefore... Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. You know, if you're in the slave market, somebody buys you and then sets you free so that he can be your husband and you can be his wife, you leave your chains at the market, right? You don't take them home. There's no need. There's no reason. Paul says, hey, just leave that stuff back. Leave it behind, right? You have no need for it. It's dead. So all the things that held us back before... The gospel transformed us, right? Let them lie. You don't, need, you don't need them, right? And understand, I'm not saying this like, I don't need them, right? I got to learn this. I got to apply this truth in my heart. Uh, verse 12, so then, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, okay? We weren't just slaves who got ransomed. We were slaves who got ransomed and made holy. So, Okay, if any of us have ever sinned once in our lives, we're in that same position as Gomer. And Jesus Christ is in that same position as Hosea, offering to buy us back, right? And so, therefore, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, what do you do, right? He doesn't say you got to storm the gates of hell or you got to do whatever, whatever, whatever. He says, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. But beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So, I told you at the beginning of tonight that we weren't going to unpack anything new or shattering, right? And we really didn't. But what, we, but what I think the Lord wanted us to maybe just pause and reflect on is to say, okay, wait a second. I was there at the slave market, and he bought me back. And that should trigger a response in my heart. And so I want to respond. I want to respond appropriately, not to earn his love, because the love was already there, 
right? The love was what made him buy me back in the first place. If you have to earn the love, you're sunk. So it's not about earning the love, it's about responding, right? So I want to respond. Okay, well, what do I do? You know, well, how can I respond? Well, Paul says, set your mind on the things above, right? Dwell in, with unity with one another. Um, consider your earthly body as dead, right? Don't, don't, don't hang on to the old sins and the old temptations, right? Um, why? Because we're beloved. We're chosen. We're, we're the elect of God, it says, right? He made us alive when we were dead, right? He didn't just make us better. He made us alive. He didn't just make us alive, but he made us alive in a way that John talks about in one of his epistles. He said, it's not even clear yet what we're going to be, right? But it's clear that we're becoming something pretty awesome, right? John says, I have no idea what it's going to look like, but it's going to be fantastic, right? He transformed us. We can see the transformation right here, but we're seeing the shadows of the transformation right here, right? What's the reality of the transformation? What should be the reality of the response, right? What is the reality of God's love, and how should that drive us? So, if we're looking at the Old Testament, looking at the Word of God, the gospel is there, and the gospel is the power of salvation, right? The gospel should drive us, all right? And I, I don't know everybody here super well. I assume everybody knows the gospel. If you're not, you know, just if you haven't received that truth, just receive it, right? He's there. He's ready to buy you back right now. You don't have to, you don't have to hang on to the chains. Just let him go, right? If you need to talk to somebody about it, talk to somebody. Find somebody in this room. Ask them to pray with you, right? But the, offers, the offer stands for anybody. You're not going to be more unfaithful to the Lord than, Gomer's, than Hosea's wife was to him. And you're not going to be loved less by the Lord, right? Because the Lord loves us in a way that we can't even imagine. So we don't have to earn it, but we get the thrill of getting to respond to it, right? So, God, I pray that you would help us to respond more fully to your love. We want to stand in awe of what you've done for us. And, and like Paul said, we want to just be singing with thankfulness in our hearts. We want to let all that we do be done for you. So I pray that you would do that work in our hearts, God. Glorify yourself. Just help us to experience the transformation that you're offering us through your Holy Spirit. God, we, we want to we move past that point of religion and into that relationship that you're offering. And I pray that you would do that in each of our hearts, that it wouldn't just be the things we do, but it would be the God we know. So do that work in our hearts, please, God, on, in, in each one of us. And just please... Uh, glorify yourself in our midst. Fill us up with your Holy Spirit. Fill us with a love for your word and have your way with us. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.